0: Well good morning everyone. How's how's everyone feeling? Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> um, so yeah you know just to piggyback on, on what Joe was talking about with Broadmoor. We're right in the middle of some pretty exciting times. Um, tomorrow at four in the morning <laughs> I get to probably I guess hop in the van and go pick up you guys and Anyway, uh, several of us are taking a trip down to Los Angeles. Um, Scott and Jen will be on this particular trip. Joe will be on this trip. I will be on this trip, and get this—I'm bringing my kid. Yeah, Cole. Cole will become—he has no idea what he's about to get into, <laughs> which is fine. But we are partnering with River of Life. So River of Life is bringing a group, um, and and we're working, you know, with them, and we're going down. It's called the L.A. Dream Center. Google it. That's the best thing I can tell you to do. Google it. Um, what the Dream Center has done for River of Life is it has actually kind of painted a very tangible picture for them when it comes to the type of outreach and the ways that they want to affect their community in a positive way. So, you know, all churches talk about it, but what the Dream Center does is it says, well, so put it into action. Here's how. Here's what it looks like. So we, we hope that we can come back with some good insights, some wisdom, some tangible tools. So that's that's really what we're uh, we're looking to do. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to serve a bunch of people. We're going to Skid Row. Anyway, it's just it's a lot of crazy stuff. Um, if you want to open your Bibles, you certainly may. Ah, I've got different scripture I'm going to be going through. I I tell you what, let's do this. Um, let's go to yeah. You'll open them up to Ephesians chapter two. So this is a this has been an interesting lesson. Um, this lesson has been rattling around in my brain for a while, and so it it. It's coming. It's come together in different pieces, and sometimes you present a lesson, and it's going to be earth shaking, right? And those are the ones that usually kind of get me in trouble. Uh, And then sometimes you just want to give pleasant reminders, which is how uh, the last lesson was that I that I uh, delivered. And now this one is also a reminder, but it's a very important reminder. It's a foundational reminder. It's one of those reminders that. We as a church right here, as ECHO, if we're moving forward with this idea of a discipleship movement, it's foundational. And it's going to revolve around Legos, which I'm going to get to in a second. But first, I want to talk about the intersection of four lives. So as Jesus was being born, back in the time when Jesus was being born, which was what day? Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, what year? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, oh, Dad, why do you got to give the answer? (laughs) I was hoping someone would say zero. Um, No, so 4 BC. Yes, he's right. Correction in the calendar. So uh, 4 BC. So give or take 10 or 15 years, there was one particular um, gentleman who was born. And um, he would grow up to be uh, essentially a um, a Pharisee. Uh, His parents, no doubt, were you know, religious at that time, but he would grow up himself to be a Pharisee. In fact, he would be a part of what we would call the Sanhedrin, which was a council of people. In fact, he would be part of the main Sanhedrin, which is a council of 71 different chosen, I guess you could call them elders, who would uh, essentially uh, work on different matters within the Jewish people. Different towns would have Sanhedrin councils, so sort of like a court, but it would be 22 people. This one was the main one. So he would grow up to that. His name... Um, his name was Nicodemus, and you may recognize that name. He is in the Bible several times um, throughout, throughout Scripture. There was something that was inside of Nicodemus, though, and we're not sure when this started to grow, but there was a seed inside of him that began to take root and to grow, and it was doubt. Doubt. He began to hear about this man named Jesus. I'm sure he heard all sorts of different things, especially among his his own, you know, collection and circle of friends. They did not look, the Pharisees did not, in general, look favorably upon Jesus Christ. But there was something growing inside of him. And so at one particular time, he would go and he would seek Jesus out. But he didn't want to be seen doing so, and so he would find him at night. And so it's something that many pastors these days cleverly refer to as Nick at night. Right? He would go and find Jesus and have a, a discussion about uh, different points in different theology. The other person was a man named Joseph. and Joseph came from a town called Arimathea. And we don't know a whole lot about Joseph. We do know that he was rich, and so he probably was born into an affluent family. But he also was a member and would be a member of the Sanhedrin. We don't know if he was a Pharisee or a Sadducee or any of those type of people, but we do know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he would play a pivotal role, and as he would grow up, I'm sure he would hear the name of Jesus Christ and the things that were being discussed. The third person is a woman. Her name is Mary, so we have a Joseph and we have a Mary, but these were not the parents of Jesus Christ. This particular Mary... She would grow up in such a way that she probably found herself in the same religion as her parents, but I'm not sure that she actually believed in it. In fact, you can probably count on her not believing in it, because a demon would eventually take refuge inside of her. Not just one, but seven. Eventually one day, those demons would be cast out by the man, Jesus Christ, and her name was Mary Magdalene. Mary would work side-by-side with Jesus from that point forward, and she would become one of his closest friends. And then the fourth person is this. I named him, because he doesn't have a name. I named him Nabal, which in the Hebrew, go ahead, Dad, tell him what it means. (laughs) Fool, yeah. I, I was looking for idiot, but I couldn't find anything, so fool would have to work. So we'll call him Nabal, and he was born, and he was a reckless youth. And he grew up, and he made friends with different people, but it was only if it was for his own personal gain. Because he became a thief, and he would rob different people. He probably had a horrible upbringing. And so now and then, he would find himself in a situation where he had plenty, right? Because he would rob somebody. He would spend it quickly, and he would find himself destitute, which would probably result in him robbing more. He would make friends with other robbers, which is probably what landed him in the trouble that he had. But all four of these particular individuals would all come together at one point, and that point would be during the death of Jesus Christ. All four lives coming together at that point. All four lives being structured in different ways. And then finally, connecting. There was um, a time when I talked about this particular symbol. And for those of you who are new, this right here is the new logo for Youth for Christ. It used to be a different logo. I don't even remember what it looked like. It was really bad. But this is the new logo, and it looks like a ripoff of the Olympics. But I've explained it before, and I had Ethan go ahead and, and, th- and throw this on the screen. Essentially what it is, is it talks about God's story and how God's story then intersects with your story. And this is the relationship. When people are talking about, oh, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, even though that term is never coined in Scripture, this is what we're talking about right? It's that way of understanding that we are interconnected with something much bigger than us. And so it's a really, really powerful part of of this representation. But then there's another circle, and that is their story. And when I say their, who am I talking about? talking about those who do not know God, at least not yet. And as you look at that, you'll see that there is a, a connection between all three of these particular stories, but right in here is where Youth for Christ is is trying to focus. If you look at the particular logo, which there it is, you'll notice that really the way that they organize this, this piece is not interlinked with this piece because it actually is meant to denote an action that through us, through God's work in us, we we are bringing people into an understanding of that connection. But today, I want to talk about This, our story and their story how do those lives interconnect so the questions that I have for you are these do you experience the fullness and excitement of a life that is surrendered to Jesus Christ do you experience that fullness and excitement how will you intertwine your life with the lives of others and do you recognize the overarching narrative that exists Now, there is an example that I want to use for this, and it comes from my youth. When I was six years old, I opened up my Christmas presents, and my grandmother had sent me a gift. She was pretty good about that. Um, This would be on my mother's side. On my father's side, they would give me gifts, but I received a little bitty racetrack when I was 17. They kind of lost touch with how old their grandchildren were, but that's okay. Um, so at six years old, I opened up this package, and it was something I'd never seen before. It was like a puzzle, only it was made out of plastic, and it had the word Lego. And at the time, I had no idea what this was. And so I don't even think I played with it, because keep in mind, Star Wars action figures were undoubtedly also given on that Christmas, you know. And, yeah, Joe. <laughs> so anyway, but it, it wouldn't take long before I would get back to that box. I'd open it up, pour it out, and I saw that there was an instruction pamphlet in there. And so following the instructions, I built a windmill. And I built it upstairs and I distinctly remember my mom calling us for dinner and she was yelling up the stairs and uh, telling us to come down for dinner, all that kind of stuff and I was almost done with this so I was like, okay, I'm coming, just give me a second, just give me a second and then, you know, she was like, come on. I said, let's go and by that time, I finally had finished it I come downstairs and I showed her, I was like, look at this and it even the thing moves, you know and I remember that and I remember my mom, oh, she was hooked. She was like, These are awesome. And so she started buying more and more Lego sets. Well, I had two other brothers at the time. Actually, I did have three. Seth was just in diapers, though, so he didn't count. But uh, there were three of us. There were three of us. And so she would buy these different sets of Legos. And so we had these different sets of Legos. And so we began to accumulate Legos. Now, those suckers are expensive. So my mother would just buy these little sets. But what's so unique about the Lego block? They all interconnect. From the time they were invented, the design was so good that across culture and across time, you can connect your Legos with any other Lego block on the planet, and it'll work, right? So it's, I mean, it's kind of a a fascinating system when you really think about it. Well, that's all great, but then my mother did one more thing, and it was brilliant, brilliant. In our upstairs bedroom, we had two bunk beds that my dad and Benji built they were, they were good. Um, they, they functioned. We stayed in them for the most part. Anyway, and if you walked between the bunk beds, you got to what was originally built into the house. It almost looked like, I don't know, maybe like a dresser or a desk or something. I'm not really sure to this day what they built, but it was like cabinets and then this big countertop with other cabinets. And my mother took out her crafty paints and she painted using blues and browns and red um, and and blues and greens and browns, a landscape with a road down the middle. That's it. What did she do? Something to, something to think about. She essentially built a story that was the overarching story of our entire Lego universe. Because, you see, you can take Legos and you can build your stuff, and they're your Legos, right? Those are your Legos, and you can build other things with them, etc. But so can the next person, and so can the next person. But if you put that together and you put it in a context where all of them relate to each other, something really amazing happens. You become less possessive about what you have because the pieces connect when, in all these other ways. And when you join them together, you, you wouldn't believe the possibilities, Right? And so my mother still started buying more Legos. I mean, Mom, you were awesome. Just wanted to tip my hat right there. She bought the unique, she bought the first Lego castle. It was yellow. I don't know why they chose that color, but it was yellow. And so she bought that. She bought the first Lego train. She had to import it from Europe, all right? And and we had, you know, all this stuff and everything. We'd have company come over. Kids would come over, and we'd be talking about, you want to come see our Legos? And they're like, well, we got Legos. We got lots of Legos. And we're like, You should come see our Legos. (laughs) They come up there and like, whoa, you know. But of course, how many people are representing the collection of Legos? Three, right? So it's a huge, huge thing of Legos. And we shared them. And we got rid of that whole obsessive identity where this is mine and this is mine. I mean, we tried to capitalize on the colors. I had blues and and blacks and stuff. But we shared them. Jeremy was great. Mr. Left Brain. Mom bought him a bunch of those little craft tray thingies he, like, organized them all. If you were building and you're like, okay, well, I need a straight four-dot blue piece, you know, he like, pull it out of the tray, throw it to you. I mean, it was amazing. Um, but I love that picture. And what I really love about that picture is this. You're building right now. You're, you're building right now. Hey, everyone is building right now. God made you in a, in a particular way, but he situated you in a particular place and at a specific time. For his purposes. The problem is we're fallen. We're sinful, right? We've rejected him. Most of the world doesn't know it. They certainly don't recognize it, and many of them resist it, right? Because it's... Who's it about? Me. No, no. These are my Legos. This is my structure, right? I don't know why I'm going southern all of a sudden. This this is... (laughs) These are the things that I'm building and no one else gets to touch. Well, you look at these lives, these four different lives. I could have chosen other lives, right? I could have chosen other lives that revolved around Jesus. There were a whole bunch of different ones. But it's funny how all of these came together at that last moment because they were then united by a whole different context. The cross gave a context for a type of unity that would exist from that point forward. It's the kingdom. And Christ rolls out without even, you know, I mean, he proclaimed it a lot. There's no doubt. But nobody is aware of this at the time. And so here it comes. It's going to be rolled out. But here they are, these lives. And what happens? Well, Mary Magdalene, of course, she was by his side. She was very loyal. She's the one who later... Decides to anoint his body with different spices and whatnot. And so she gets to be the first person who what? As she's going to the tomb, she... Yeah, she sees the resurrected Lord. What an honor that must be. Right? And then look at um, Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're both on the same council... They don't believe that Jesus should be sacrificed. They were probably one of the, you know, the two votes that were like nay out of the 71. But nevertheless, that's what happens. Something's already growing inside of Nicodemus. You see that before. But the two, in some ways, join together in preparing and assisting each other in Jesus' burial. Joseph of Arimathea decides to use, it may have been his own tomb, but he's a rich man, and so he wants to make sure that the king, the son of God, is buried as the son of God should be. And so he buys the most expensive tomb. And you see these lives all interconnecting at that crucial point where Jesus is. And from that point forward, things change. Their lives change. They become something that's much greater, a greater, uh, a much larger, larger picture. And, of course, the thief on the cross, who, we, who I'm calling Nabal. And you'll find his account over in Luke chapter 23, because the one of the thieves, probably his buddy, who knows, they were caught red-handed in whatever thievery they were involved in, but only this time, somehow it involved Rome. And so they were tried in a Roman court, and, they, and the, the sentence was death by crucifixion, and so they were nailed to these particular crosses, and his buddy's making fun of Jesus, just like everyone else, and he is too. He's making fun of Jesus, and then something's something changes it's like god allows his spirit to penetrate his heart and he says these words to his friend he says whoa whoa do you not fear god since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds but this man over here he's done nothing wrong and then he said to jesus jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to and jesus said truly i say to you today you'll be with me in paradise changes everything and here he is he's now a part of this grand overarching picture of how they all come together the thief on the cross is interesting to me i want to i want to i don't want to get stuck here but there's a point that i need to bring out and i want you to try to follow along with me and it is going to be in ephesians is where we're going to be um when i speak to different people um I run into different religions, different denominations, and I do really enjoy the theology that we talk about. I've told you this before. I like, to, I like to talk about these different things. There's Arminian things. There's the Calvinistic things and all that kind of stuff. Everyone is very respectful. But one of the arguments that I hear all the time is, how do you explain the thief on the cross? Here's what I've read. What we learn from the saved thief on the cross is this, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. No matter the number of our sins and no matter if we or the world think that our sins are minor or extreme, it is never too late to repent and to accept the free gift of salvation. Now, I would say amen to that. But there's one word that bothers me. And it's the word free. Now, listen, if I, if I step on your toes, have grace, right? You talk to me afterwards. I have a a hard time with this concept of free. Because I know what's being said here, and I understand this idea that they're they're communicating here, this idea of free. If you go to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9, you're going to read in the first few verses, you were dead in your trespasses. And Paul lays it out really well. He's like, you were dead. This was your formal life, and you walked in it. You're guilty of it. In verse 3, among... All of these sons of disobedience, among them, you too formerly lived in the lusts of your flesh. You indulged in the desires of your flesh and your mind and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast amen you didn't earn it And as this particular author of this paragraph is talking about the free gift, I believe that's what he intends with that word free. You didn't earn it, right? That You didn't achieve it. It wasn't like you had to work for it, right? Okay, I get that. But let me just pause for a second. This idea of free carries all sorts of meaning. You see, when I was a kid, We went to um, the the grocery store. Now, being raised up on a preacher's salary, no offense, Dad, uh, you didn't have much. (laughs) Like, if you had Lucky Charms for breakfast, that was a big deal. (laughs) Otherwise, it was Cheerios. (laughs) Um, So we would go to the grocery store, and I remember, oh, I wish my brothers were here right now. We would go to that grocery store, and we would case that joint to find every free sample station, right? We would find them, because that's why we were there, was to find the free samples, Jeremy was awesome, he would find them everywhere. And then he would plot his course so that enough time would go by or he'd make another round, you know? Because you'd go (laughs) over to, and the bakery is where you always start. They always had donuts cut up. So you go up there and you take the sample. It's free, right? There's no obligation. So we take it and we enjoy it and you know, and we go on our way and everything else. Does the baker all of a sudden say, okay, did you enjoy that? All right, now you have to buy some. Right? No, it doesn't say that. Because how do we see free? Free is free. It means there is no exchange of goods on my part to receive this thing. Maybe you've thought about that as you're driving down the road and you look and there's a couch on the side of the road and a sign that says free. Right? You can take it. No obligation. Right? Struggle with that. Struggle with that. The Greek word that is being used when it comes to this idea of gift of God is different than any of the other words, both in the Greek or in the Hebrew, when they're talking about gifts. When it talks about the gift of God specifically towards and talking about grace, it's a different word. It's doria, is the word. In Romans five fifteen, I was amazed. We wrote, read from Romans chapter five. I love that. It says, "But the free gift." is not like the transgression. In other words, as you remember with Romans 5, he's talking about the sin of Adam. By one man, all these people are cursed. But then, by one man, right? Salvation comes, and it's free. Well, this idea of a free gift, there's no translation for the free. It's together. The free gift is the translation. But doria is translated this way. It is the favor, the benefit, the good that is bestowed gratuitously On us. It's like trying to explain, this isn't just any gift. This is a huge gift. This is a really special gift. And so we use this adjective free to sort of describe that gift. The problem is, is I think it has delivered a meaning, which is this. There's nothing that you've done to receive God's grace, which we all agreed on, right? But what about after? I mean, do I really get to just as if I took a free sample go on with my life? Well, let's read the next verse. Romans 5, I'm sorry. Ephesians, we were in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. Let's read the next verse, verse 10. Were his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Well, now what's he talking about? I think he's talking about the other side. You were dead to your sin. Now you're alive in Jesus Christ. That's the whole theme of Ephesians. This is how you once were, and now you're the new man. So now what? Well, if it's just a free gift, take it and and run. I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think that's the essence of Doria. The reason this is so important Is because if we fool ourselves into thinking that we have a religion that allows us to live our lives any way that we want, basking in the glow of the grace of God, we set ourselves up for, well, a judgment that I'm glad I don't have to deliver. I believe that there is a cost. I like the phrase, surrender yourself to Jesus. I think it communicates, I'm going to now give everything about me to you. My Legos are no longer mine. My Legos serve a much larger context, an overarching picture, a narrative that's much bigger than me, and I freely give them and and build. In fact, I'll maybe share. I'll be like, you should try this. Or do you need, do you need some windows? I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll tear this down. Give you some windows. You know, when we're talking about the context of our Christianity, this is a really important point. We surrender ourselves. Our Legos now don't belong to us. But here's the problem. Christians, I'm speaking to Christians and to those who are not Christians. We love to build our own Legos. We do we love to build our own structures we call them narratives we love to chase these small little narratives of our life there's a man named Will Mancini he wrote this book called God Dreams it's rock in my world Will Mancini writes an excerpt about another book <laughs> called The Sacred Romance which is written by a name you might be familiar with John Eldridge so I want to read you this piece This is Will Mancini speaking. A book that influenced me significantly in answering the questions of spiritual formation is The Sacred Romance by John Eldridge. In particular, he wrote a chapter titled A Story Big Enough to Live In. The central theme of the chapter is that we are all immersed in a tournament of narratives. That is, many kinds of stories that compete for the central way in which we define our lives. In some way, we... All choose stories that control us. How we think about events and relationships and how we define meaning and success. Eldridge makes the point that in the absence of the larger story of God, we settle for the smaller stories of our own making. Some of these smaller stories are broader ideas of a culture. For example, there is the story of consumerism. My success is determined by how much I possess. Or the story of relativism. My experience alone tells me what is true. At other times, the stories in our tournament of narratives are personal and specific, such as all bosses are jerks and I will never get ahead in life. Or my life is happiest when my children are good at school and sports. So listen to how John Eldridge describes our drift to the smaller stories without a larger one. These are his words. In the postmodern era, all we have left is our small stories, our role models, our movie stars, and the biggest taste of transcendence is the opening of ski season. Our best expressions are on the level of, have a nice day. The only reminder we have of a story beyond our own is the evening news, an arbitrary collection of scenes and images without any bigger picture in which they fit. The central belief of our times is that there is no story. Nothing hangs together. We all have bits and pieces, the random days of our lives, Tragedy still brings us to tears, and heroism still lifts our hearts, but there is no context to any of it. But our hearts were made to live in a larger story. And having lost that, we do the best we can by developing our own smaller dramas. We look at the things that people get caught up in, sports, politics, soap operas, rock bands, desperate For something larger to give our lives transcendence, we try to lose ourselves in the smallest kinds of stories. Do you relate? Can you see how the rest of the world might be in that? So there are two things. These are the two things that that I'm hitting you with. Number one, look at your life. Look at your life. What Lego structures are you building for yourself? Right? Are you aware that you're existing under a much larger story and that we're all interconnected because those pieces fit? Or are you building for yourself? That's number one. That's number one. Number two, as you look at the friends that you have, the family that you have, the people around you, The people who have not yet come to know Christ. We can't be, you know, hard on people who are in sin, right? They're sinners for Pete's sake, right? But I do believe that you can share hope of a larger story. I want you to do this. Maybe this is the exercise. The second thing is this. Look at the people around you. What stories do you see? What Lego structures do you see that are not giving them fulfillment? personal ambition. You know, when I speak with somebody else and we talk about their career or if I talk with a kid and I'm like, "So what are you going to do? What are you going to major in?" you know, and they're talking about, "Well, you know, I'm going to be a vet. And I'm going to go work in Africa and I'm going to help elephants or, you know, whatever it is." There's a part of me that sort of wants it's just asking on the inside, "So that will help the bigger story how?" Of course, that's an offensive question, isn't it? Right? Why? Because people don't want to give up their Legos. We love building with our Legos. We want to keep our Legos to ourselves. So those are the two things. What structures are you building? And are you building to the larger narrative that we have, maybe starting with this church, but thinking in terms of the kingdom? And the second thing is, what opportunity do you see when you look at the other structures that people are building? I, my guess is people are looking for answers. People have questions. They are not content. I think deep down inside of every person, there's a question of why am I here in the first place, right? These are the thoughts I want to leave you with. Um, I also wanted to, and I, I skipped over this part, and I'll bring it back in another lesson. I do want to talk just briefly, real fast. I'm going to close with this verse. It's First Peter chapter 3. I always love, love, love this particular verse, and I do quote it often. But, many times when you ask somebody to surrender themselves to Jesus Christ, you have to make them aware that it is not just colored bubbles. It's not like building these new structures in this greater narrative. It's fun, but it's hard. I mean, there is sacrifice that's involved. and There are various trials that come. Jesus refers to this when he's following a different crowd in Luke. For the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize. But people are pressing in into him, and he turns around and he says, Hey, which of you, if you were going to build a tower, wouldn't first sit down and maybe calculate the cost? Or perhaps if you were going to attack, if you were going to be uh, attacking another village and you were the, the army commander, would you sit down and make plans accordingly and anticipate how that was going to go? And what's his point? His point is this, when you look at discipleship, there's such significant sacrifice and surrender that we're talking about in discipleship that you have to think about the cost. And as you look at other people and the structures, be sensitive to that. Hey, those structures, they're not easy for people to tear down. There may be opportunity in there, but it's not like they can just break them down easily. Relationship is the key. Relationship is the key. But right now, my challenge is this. Look at your own life and look at the lives of others. Let me close with 1 Peter 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again. Born again to a living hope. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We obtain an inheritance. It is imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected. By the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of this, you greatly, greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, would be tested by fire. And it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's bow. Great God, Father, I thank you so much for what you've given us. I thank you for our Legos. I thank you for the fact that we get to build and you made us in such unique ways that we can create and we have dreams and we can have vision of, of what our lives will look like. But Lord, let us surrender it. God, help, help me. Help My fellow brothers and sisters, Lord, help us even now as we struggle to surrender what you've given. It was all yours to begin with, but that gets lost. So Lord, as we surrender our lives to you, as we accept this free gift that you have given to us, please use us. Allow us to bring you glory. And if that's through fire and if that's through pain, then give us comfort and give us peace allow us to go willingly. Lord, help us to look at the world around us and to see the structures that are being built. Help us to see the emptiness that's found inside. Help us to recognize the opportunity that's, that's in there to communicate in so many ways that there is a much, much better picture, a greater narrative that transcends all of these narratives. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the ways that our lives interconnect with his and the ways that he uses us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.